For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. In our Easter Sunday celebration, we reflect on John chapter 11, where Lazarus is raised from the dead, reminding us that Jesus Christ will raise us from the dead as well. Let's join Pastor Ross now with the message entitled, Raised to Life. An interesting article that splashed its way across the headlines last year. Maybe you saw the, the title, The Key to Eternal Life. Now, it was in a scientific uh, journal and some doctors and scientists talking about aging and all of that. So I'll read a little bit of the introduction to the article. The key to eternal life could be a procedure to lengthen our chromosomes. Uh, The procedure would allow scientists to lengthen telomeres, they're called, the protective caps that are on the end of chromosomes and shorten with age. The telomeres protect chromosomes from getting damaged as cells divide and grow. Uh, the new process would allow scientists to lengthen the telomeres, effectively turning back the biological clock and making the chromosomes and the people that are made out of those chromosomes younger. And of course, these articles always end with the same thing. Well, the breakthrough seems a long way off. (laughs) However, yeah, keep looking. You know what the Bible says about that appointment that all human beings have to keep, right? It is appointed unto men once to die and then face uh, the Lord. Well, younger is nice, right? But eternal life in this world? I don't think, that sounds more like a punishment to me than anything to look forward to. I mean, consider just watching the news lately, the presidential debates and, the, and, and that whole race. Can you imagine that going on forever? <laughs> when the Bible talks about eternal life, actually there are words that denote quality of life. It's a whole different world and a whole different way of being. Well. The interview asked the, the interviewer, interviewer asked the scientist, uh, why is it so hard to figure out what causes aging? And just a little bit more here. Uh, quoting the scientist now, in many ways, we already know what causes aging. We just don't know what to do about it. <laughs> Honest, that's nice. We don't know what causes aging in the kind of molecular detail that would allow us to intervene in large, meaningful ways. It's not even clear that once we solve those mysteries, we would be able to extend longevity in any dramatic way. Yeah, see, that's the deal. Uh, 10 out of 10, the stats just in, 10 out of 10 people have to slowly grow old and then face death. And so, yeah, it's true. And what do they have to say about it? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know, right? And you know what we do know is that we're not very happy about it, right? Who's happy about those statistics? 10 out of 10? My word. For all the talk that there is about heaven, and we talk a lot about it, not only Christians, but everybody talks about heaven, um, 
you know, but then the news comes, and then you find out that, you know, you may be closer than you thought to heaven, and, but nobody seems very happy about it. Nobody really wants to go, right? So, and, and that's natural because God, in the mechanism he put in us, wants to survive. We have that passion for life. But even when we're assured of eternal life, it's still hard to hear the doctor say, get your uh, life in order, you know. Uh, the whole idea of death is kind of an aversion to us, right? Um, you, you know, I read a funny comment in Reader's Digest where the, the readers write in and tell a little funny story. A woman said, you know, I was taken a little aback by uh, my last visit there to the funeral home, I looked at the receipt, and underneath the bill, it said, thank you, and please come again. <laughs> I know, right? That's funny, because nobody wants to go again for a second visit there, right? But sadly, how many of us must make a second visit and a third visit, and it just never stops until we are the visit, Right? That we are the ones visiting and someone else is paying and looking at the receipt. And it's unfortunate. And we don't even know to whether to laugh or to cry at that kind of joke. And obviously, the answer is not to laugh. <laughs> All right, moving on. <laughs> it's cathartic. You know, I heard speaking about joking about something we don't like to talk about. Uh, some guy says, it's tax season. And he, he says, you know what? When I die, just cremate me. Stick my ashes in an envelope and send it to the IRS with a note that says, now you got everything. <laughs> oh, it helps to laugh a little bit about it because, uh, you know, it's a little bit cathartic. But, you know, uh, as much as we want to go on to be with the Lord and be in heaven, uh, we do have a, a surviving mechanism in us, a passion for life, and it hurts. It hurts when people uh, have gone on before us. So and uh, along with that, God, as the Bible says, placed eternity in our hearts. In other words, God's point of view is that in all human beings, we have a sense that the human soul was made for more than a handful of decades. And uh, with that knowledge comes a strong desire to embrace that eternal happily ever after. I mean, the Bible talks about our first parents, Adam and Eve. They were certainly not created to wrinkle up and lay down and die and, and not exist. That was not God's idea. And the Bible says we, we sort of sense that, and so we're out there looking and searching. One more quick story before we dive into our text. Uh, I lived in Coral Gables when I was very young for a year. In fact, my little brother was born in Miami. That's where Coral Gables is. And, and I really remember this because I had a hard time pronouncing the name of the street that we lived off of. It was Ponce de Leon Boulevard, and it was near Ponce de Leon Park. And in that park was a statue of Ponce de Leon. You're catching on now. And in front of the statue, there was a fountain. And I asked my mom, what's the fountain there for? And she said, that's because he was discovering the fountain of youth. The fountain of youth, is he's more famous for that 
than for really bringing the first Europeans uh, ever to the state of what is now called Florida, uh, Spanish explorers there in the 1500s. But really what we know him for is for his quest. And he said, hey, I'm, I, I'm right there. I'm on the brink of finding the fountain of youth. Well, he died. And, uh, <laughs> and, and he stayed dead. And that was the problem there. Now the Bible it, it really says the answer can't be found under a microscope, and it's not in lengthening the chromosomes, but it's in a change of heart. It's that the Holy Spirit can come inside us, make our spirit alive, and connect that to the one God, and that one God is eternal, God our Father, and because we're connected to him, the eternal one, we share in a life that's uncorruptible and can never End. And so 1,500 years before Ponce was, uh, you know, traipsing around the Everglades in search of this elusive pond of water, uh, a baby was born in Bethlehem, and no ordinary birth was it. Uh, he had his own star. A star was lighting the way for people to come, and not just any people, kings from the, from the east who had read prophecies. They came to bow down before this infant, bringing gifts, expensive gifts. And here was the rumor, the prophecy said that this was a virgin birth, that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, went into a human womb. And the product of that was called the God-man. And so that's why angels burst into a heavenly choir song, you know, and, and why his birth was announced by angels, because it was an event. It was the event of the universe that God would become one of us with a purpose. What did Gabriel say? Name him Jesus, because he has a purpose. He's come to save his people from their sins. And so right from the jump, we have what God wants to do and who he is. And, you know, you'd imagine somebody with an extraordinary birth like that to grow up and do some extraordinary things. Well, we're not disappointed there because that same baby who grows to become a man, 30 years old, he starts a ministry with the provocative claim. He says, I have come down from heaven to die for your sins to destroy death, to rise again, and to give you life, life everlasting, to reconnect you to God the Father. That was his claim. And he said, if anyone believes in me, they'll never die, right? And so really, the, the rest of the book is about telling us how God did just that, and that's called the gospel. So if somebody makes a claim like that, they better be able to deliver the goods, right? And to back up that claim with some powerful deeds. In fact, I'm quoting Jesus. He told the crowd, listen, anybody can make these crazy claims, but if they can do also the work that only God can do, then that claim has to be considered credible because they're backing up the claim with evidence and power. And so the story that we're going to take a look at is one of several stories that does just that. It backs up the claim. The claim what? Jesus said, believe in me, 
and your problems with death is over. You will never die, but you will live forever. That's the claim. And now this story is going to say, and by the way, here's the evidence that I can make good on that claim to keep you alive through death. And it begins in John 13. I'm just condensing the storyline, and I have it for you here. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her famous sister, Martha. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Uh, Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. So we're going to take a look at this and along the way kind of make some observations this Easter Sunday morning. Uh, So uh, Lazarus has a problem. That's my first observation. And so do you and so do I. Now, Lazarus is an acquaintance, and much more than that, Jesus had a circle of close friends. He hung up, hung out at their houses, and uh, they had dinner together. You know Luke chapter 10, the famous family. This is Mary and Martha, the famous sisters, right? What are they famous for? Well, Martha was busy in the kitchen, and she's a real uh, person who loved to work and serve, but her sister, Mary, liked to sit down and have a Bible study and a little uh, devotional time with Jesus. And Mary's in the kitchen and she's clanging the pots and the pans and mama not happy. <laughs> Though mama's going to show everybody I'm not happy right now. And she came out with an attitude, Martha. And Martha says, Lord, you want to tell my sister to quit sitting around, get up and lend me a hand in the kitchen. I'm doing all the work myself. So that's the famous family and, and they, they knew the Lord, and he was in their home very often. And now this guy, their, their brother, Jesus was very close to Lazarus, was sick. And she, they send word to Jesus, say, hurry up, hurry up, Lord. You need to be here because he's gasping now. He, he's sick. The one, you're one of your best friends. He's on his deathbed. Come, quickly. And Jesus, very important, you miss this in the story sometimes. Jesus says to the messenger, take this word back. This death doesn't, and this sickness rather, does not end in death. But God is working to show his power and what God can do through God the Son. That's really what he's going to say. And the messengers go back with that reaction from Jesus. You know, Jesus is very optimistic. He says, hey, guys, this story's." uh pretty serious, but quite frankly, it has a happy ending. But by the way, I'm glad he says that for your sake, your faith, that we weren't there. He comes out and says, quite frankly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad that you and I were not there. Why does he say that? Because everybody there just stumbles. They lose their faith. Everything Jesus had taught them and done just kind of flew out the window They had expected that Jesus was going to be there and prevent the brother from dying. And when things didn't go that way, they lost sight of Jesus and they lost sight of faith. And so Jesus said, hey, I'm glad that you guys didn't get sucked into all of that. I'm glad that we are not in the presence of all of that uh, stumbling in, in the faith. And so she did send word, hurry up, 
Lord, hurry up. Why did Jesus delay? He hears, hey, it's life and death. You gotta come. You gotta stop this terrible thing from happening. So he says, okay. And he waits and he lets it happen. Why? Well, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. He certainly wasn't happy that there had to be death and grieving and crying and pain, but he had a plan and something he loves to do. Uh, Jesus need, needed somebody for a, ser- uh, a sermon illustration, right? He's been making this point. Whoever believes in me will live forever. Now I need kind of a, a, an object lesson. I need a corpse. I, I need to prove. If I'm saying, hey, I can keep you from dying, let me show you a dead body and, and that I actually can keep you from dying because you'll look at the dead man and I'll look at the dead man and I'll say, hey, get up. And he'll get up. I need a volunteer. And apparently Lazarus volunteered. You know, well, he wasn't, yeah, he was drafted. All right. But the Lord knows this. Now, you might be wondering, you know, how did we ever get in this mess? Lazarus gets sick and dies, and my grandma had to get sick and die. My dad uh, got sick and died, and and I'm going to get sick and die. How did that all happen? You know, well, it didn't start out that way. You know, Genesis chapters 1 through 3 tell us how it all got started, how the problem entered, and the whole rest of the Bible tells us how God went about to fix it. So it started out really nice, Genesis 1 and 2. That's this beautiful creation. It's called paradise. It's called Eden. And God takes as his crowning touch, he takes the dirt and shapes it into a man. And he breathes into the nostrils the breath of life. And man became an eternal soul, a being. And he made from man a woman, and there was harmony, and there was just perfect everything because it was the Garden of Eden, perfection, and God gave the man something to do, and the the marriage was in harmony, and they were walking with God. Everything was good, but there was a problem. Now, love demands choice. There has to be free will if it's love. Right? And so, for example, you know, I express my love every time I choose to honor my vows and say, I do to my wife. But I have choices, right? And so, to express my love, I make the choice to honor and use my free will to say yes to Barb and no to others, right? And so, God does the same thing. He says, Here, you've got a bunch of trees. Eat from any tree you want, except that one in the middle there. Don't eat of that tree. It's got some pretty good-looking fruit. It smells good. It's everything about it's attractive. But I want you to express your love by using your free volition, your will, to choose in love to vow to me and to say no to that tree. Well, you know what happened. Enter the tempter and enter the liar, right? And, and what does he do? He, he starts to talk to Eve. And what does he say? He says, did God really say you're going to die? Come on, if you eat of that fruit. And she said, yeah, he did. He said that. He said, I, we can eat all the trees, of all the trees. But if we eat of that one, he says, yeah, you're surely going to die. He says, that's nonsense. You will not surely die. You know what? He's trying to keep 
something good from you. You know, he knows that the day you eat that fruit, you're going to be as smart as he is, right? And, and he doesn't want any competition. He wants to be the smartest guy on the planet, you know? So take a look at it, Eve. Doesn't it look good? Isn't it pretty? <laughs> Come on. It'll make you really smart. And so, and everyone's doing it. Well, no. <laughs> oh, that's the one time he couldn't say that. <laughs> Because not everybody was. But she ate and she brought it. You know the story. Brought it to her husband. And God, blamed, God puts full responsibility on the man. And he sins as well. And then God kept his promise. Did they fall over and die? No, they didn't. But their spirits disconnected from the source of life. And in a spiritual sense, in a real, real way, they died because they disconnected from the source of their lives, God. And they went and did something evil, took a different path. And so the whole gospel is about Jesus correcting that. In fact, the good news came right there in the garden. He just started announcing, hey, you know, you deceived the entire race and we died with them because we were in them. So we are born disconnected. But he said, right there in the garden, he started the good news. He said, from a woman, you know, you deceived a woman and brought all this pain and suffering through a woman. I'm going to take a woman and I'm going to come through her womb and conquer you and death and restore them to reconnect them. So Christ comes into the world saying, I'm the reconnector. I'm the reconciler. I'm here. I'm the God-man. Link up with me and you'll never die. Eat of the bread that I bring and you'll live forever. So that's the whole uh, gospel message in a, in a nutshell, you see. And so, he, you know, he, he's going to now uh, show us that Lazarus has a problem, gets sick and dies, uh, but he's going to have a friend who can fix things he has a friend who can help, and we have a friend who can help us with our problem. Let's see what the friend is up to. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, condensing the storyline. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come in the world. Well, that's a good answer, Martha. That's a very good answer. You know, it's not perfected in faith all the way, as we're going to see. But she, she knows she's been doing more than the dishes, apparently, because she's got a pretty good answer, better than all the disciples in describing who Jesus was. So... Uh, again, now Jesus has a question for Martha, and Jesus has a question for you and for me. Do you believe this? 
do you believe? Now, Lazarus had been four dead in the tomb, four days, perfect. That's what Jesus wanted. Why? It's a preemptive strike on the Lord's part because he knows everything. The Jews had this silly superstition. It's not biblical, but they thought that the one, when somebody died, that their spirit kind of hung out for three days. But on the fourth day, it was over, over. So Jesus thought he could just imagine the guy saying, Lazarus was raised from the dead. Well, how long had he been in the tomb? <laughs> you know, he, he already saw all of that. So he waits to the fourth day to pull the rug out from underneath the feet of his would-be detractors. And so, you know, here we go with uh, the connection here. Um, he's going to ask, uh, he, Martha is going to find out that he's near her. And so she makes a beeline for the Savior and unburdens her grief-stricken soul. Um, you know, you notice two things about her response here. Uh, number one, you see an honest grief, right? And number two, you're going to see genuine faith. And genuine faith doesn't mean perfect, but it means it's real. Right, And that's all God asks for. He doesn't ask for perfection. He asks for sincere trust. And she's going to show you she has that. But first, her honest grief. She says, in essence, Lord, <laughs> not going to lie, I am really disappointed in you. Now, you sent word. This, this sickness doesn't end in death. And he died. We were waiting. I'm watching him breathe. And I'm looking at the door and I'm watching him breathe. And I'm looking at the door and I send people look, to, look posted on the driveway. Is he coming? Is that him? Is that him? And looking and watching and looking and watching. And then his chest didn't rise and the door didn't open. Where were you? We're your friends. You healed so many people. We've seen it for three and a half years. And what about us? We've cooked supper for you. You're in our house. How could you let this happen to someone like my brother? If you were here, he would still be up. I'd be in the kitchen complaining <laughs> happily. But no, Lord, that's not going to happen. How often, when things turn out differently... When we reinterpret some kind of promise that God has given us and we get it in our heads, this is going to happen because it says this. And I mean, I got a message, a message from the messenger and she did, but she misunderstood what he was saying and she mapped it all out. And then when Jesus didn't deliver the way she thought it, the story was going to go, she threw the baby out with the bathwater. And so many Christians do that. We get our, our mindset, of, this, this, this can't happen. God can't, a God of love can't let this happen to me. And we fail to see that sometimes the hardest things, the worst things, the most ugly things can be the best. We have a promised Christian friend, Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 says, God is causing all things to work together for good for those of us who love him and are called according to his purpose. So we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, we can be upset. But you know what? Sometimes, look at the cross. It's the worst thing that ever happened. And it's the best thing 
that ever happened. The son of God being stripped and beaten beyond recognition. The Bible says he was so battered that you couldn't tell it was a human being. That's God in a body stripped and humiliated and tortured and dying and gasping for air. That is the ugliest thing in the world and it's the most beautiful. It's the most despairing of moments and it's the most hope-filled moment. It's the worst thing and the best thing. It's the ugliest thing and it's the most beautiful. It's the darkest moment in human history and it's the brightest all at the same time. And my friend, we need a new filter on the way we look at hard things in our lives. It can be the weakest time, but the strongest. It can be the most painful, but the most comforting because God's at work. So let us enlarge our perspective of how the living God can use adversity. He's already told us over and over again, count it all joy when you fall into all kinds of trouble because God's at work. He's got this. He's going to turn it around. He's going to use it for your good. And so we go on here. So that's the honest feeling of grief. And I think maybe Jesus gave her a look like, Come on, you know, I sent you a messenger. Maybe he said, did you get the message? You know, if you would have been here, did you, what, did you? And then she goes, but I know that, oh, yeah, yeah. God will give you anything you ask him for. And so a little reversal here. Uh, you know, she's saying the right things. She has genuine faith. She's going to let her feelings catch up. She's going to say, this is true. I know that God can, yeah, I've seen it happen Anything can happen. Now, when the story goes on, we know that she really doesn't believe that he's going to do it, but she's got the right words. And that's what's important is that the mind is saying, this is true. And the heart just needs to catch up. And it does. And Jesus doesn't hold it against her. In fact, he, he's happy to hear that. He says, you know, I can just see his face. She says, even though now I know that you could just do anything. And the Lord's like, hmm. Really? Okay, let's do this. Mary, uh, Martha, your brother's going to rise. Let's try it. Let's do this, right? And then she says, oh, Lord, I know that. I went to Sunday school or Sabbath school. I sing the hymn, you know, some glad morning when this life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get it, Lord. But listen, Lord, let me help you out here. The future promise of heaven is of no help to me right now, but thank you for sharing. In, <laughs> in the resurrection, way down there, I know, I know, we'll see him again someday, and he's probably fishing on some hill, and you know, it's not helping me, Lord. And the Lord goes, Martha, and she, because it's God speaking. He doesn't need to pray for anointing. He's the son of God. When he speaks, God is speaking. So he spoke, and she's like, oh, Lord, if you would have been here, you know, I know about the resurrection. <laughs> I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in me, they never die. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I know who you are. You're the Christ. Christ is the Greek form of Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew. The one, the chosen one. 
And when she says, you're the son of God, she's saying you're equal to God. You're divine. And you're in fulfillment of all the prophecies. That's her answer. And she's going to let her feelings catch up later. She goes, I know. I get it. Thank you for talking to me. I received that. And she's going to get on board now. And then, you know, that's the question. Do you believe this? And, and you know, the Bible says uh, human destinies that are eternal hinge on one question. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then he says, do you believe? Because what's the promise? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes... So it's a simple fact when the evidence comes in and he says, do you believe this? Do you believe that I'm the way to the Father? And then he expects a response. Well, he asked Martha the question. Martha gave uh, the answer to that question. And the Lord is not willing that any perish, but all come to have life and repentance. Um, And so first he gives us all evidence before he asks you and me the question. First, he supplies evidence, just a few things here. He gives evidence, then he asks that question, do you believe? The number one evidence is creation, the wonders of the universe, the design of life all around us, the wonders of a human body, and being a human spirit. You know, uh, Romans chapter one says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. That's Romans chapter 1. And so really, for anyone who's ever watched a beautiful sunset on a beach, for anybody who's ever seen a peacock spread its feathers, for anybody who's ever held a little baby infant, you're going to have some splaining to do, (laughs) right? Because if those three things have happened to you. God says you have enough information to know. And he begins the question, do you believe? The second evidence he gives everybody is it's called a conscience. And Romans chapter 2 says we all have one given to us by God as a moral compass. True, it's broken, not working correctly because of the fall. However, it does prompt us with right and wrong and tells us that there is a God. We we know that in our conscience, so the Bible says anyway. The third evidence is that he brings us in, in contact with the word of God, the gospel. And so most everybody in here has heard the gospel. You know, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that he's looking for faith and that there's a heaven and a hell and how to avoid it. And so he speaks through the gospel, and then he asks at the end, do you believe? Because believers are saved, and unbelievers, according to the Bible, are not. And so another layer of uh, evidence before he asks is um, the Holy Spirit himself, God himself, spirit form, the Bible teaches, comes alongside every human being ever born to try to convince them about right and wrong and about their need of a savior from sin and who Christ is. And that the Holy Spirit has spoken to every soul that will ever stand at the judgment seat. They're already well acquainted. The Bible says God has been speaking 
and showing evidence and then asking the question in light of the evidence, do you believe? And then the last thing, he allows people to see lives transformed. They're called the church or Christians, right? And so unbelievers get to see somebody uh, who says, hey, I used to be immoral. I was not a believer. And then something happened. A light came on. And I, I, I'm now, I, I strive for moral excellence. Who is this person? You know, uh, a greedy person who becomes a giver, a murderer like Saul becomes a missionary. How do you explain things like that? And so the transformative power of God seen through Christian lives, and we call that their testimony, and that's yet another layer of evidence. I was telling, I was trying to use that evidence uh, to help an unbeliever. I was having coffee, and I was telling him the story. I said, I'm 19 years old. I'm, I'm a party animal. I was not raised in the church, no faith at all. I was doing my best to just live it up. And just sin, sin, sin. I was 19, just loving it. And then my, my father, a Jew from Brooklyn, became a born-again Christian, and it just kind of weirded me out. I saw some changes in him, and I'm like, whoa, there, there might be something going on here. And then everywhere I went, I heard the gospel here on a, on a bus or in, you know, on the street or at work. But I was on a dance floor once in a nightclub, and I had a vision, and it was not pretty. And the voice said to me, why will you go to hell when you don't have to? And I had not a good response. I had nothing to say to that. And I thought I was losing my mind, but you know, I walked out of that bar, and I was a born-again Christian. I was a believer. I could say nothing to that. God had turned on a light bulb, right? So I'm telling the guy this. Right? And I said, I used to cuss out Christians. I, I, I used to, uh, well, I'd see them on the street. They're passing out Bibles. I'd be uh, off going to a bar with my buddies, and we'd be passing them, and they'd go, come on, come on. And I'd say, oh, no, let me give this guy a hard time. And I was the one in the group stopping to persecute the guy with the Bible, right? And I did a good job of it, I might say. <laughs> and now... I'm the guy on the corner with the Bible. <laughs> what happened to me, right? So I've been telling the guy this, right? I was a little less dramatic in Starbucks. <laughs> and he goes, I'll tell you what happened to you. You had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> well, you know, I said to him, I, I stopped drinking. I stopped doing bad things. I stopped stealing. I stopped profanity. I started to love people and be other-centered. Still working on that one. Would to God everyone had a nervous breakdown, sir. Because when you have a nervous breakdown, you have to be hospitalized because you're, you're unproductive and unhealthy. But this nervous breakdown was a blessing, <laughs> and it changed my life for the good. So I asked him, do you believe? In light of the evidence of creation, conscience, the word of God, the Holy Spirit, and the church and Christian testimonies, do you believe this? Question to her is a question 
to you and me. The grand finale. Let's watch. Jesus, once more deeply moved, I'll tell you about that, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. And Jesus said, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Wow. How many of you are going to order that video when you get to heaven? (laughs) I am. Oh, that's the first thing I want to see. I just want to see the whole thing. I want to see the looks on their faces, you know, as they roll the stone away and everybody's like, oh, wow, what's going to happen here? You know, wow. The best funeral ever is when you can give your own eulogy, you know? (laughs) Who else would like to share a funny story or a heartwarming memory about Lazarus and then more do. <laughs> you know, I just, that's pretty amazing stuff. I'm trying. <laughs> that's all I can say. Jesus is visibly moved again. Well, what happened? Well, he's done with Sister A. Now Sister B, right? Mary comes calling. And it's round two. It's the same thing. Lord, if you were here, uh, my brother would not have died. And so Jesus uh, comes around the corner and sees everybody distraught. These are his friends who knew him the best and heard and saw the most. Uh, And he becomes upset and deeply moved. And we're going to talk about that now. Why is Jesus upset? This is the famous passage where Jesus weeps. Jesus wept, the shortest verse in the Bible, and perhaps the most profound. Why does Jesus weep? Well, there are three reasons. Number one, he's sympathetic. The Bible says he's a sympathetic high priest. In other words, he's our go-between. He just He's affected by our weaknesses. When we cry, he cries. He feels our pain. He walks with us. Um, he grieves with us. And he's grieved. He knows what he's going to do. He's not sad about Lazarus. He's got that, right? But they don't know, and they're upset, and he's upset. So that's one layer. Okay, the second layer is the word gives it away, is that when it says that he was deeply moved, that word is agitated in spirit, and it's used of a horse when it's angry and snorts. That's the word. Now, Commentators say, well, of course he's not mad at the sisters. He's just acting in love and compassion to the sisters. And he's not mad at the crowd. What? He's facing death, the enemy. And, And he sees what death has done right there. And then he, as the son of God, he's seen what death has done throughout humanity. And that he came for the purpose to confront that beast And he knows what that's going to take. 
It's going to take him being stripped and beaten and nailed to a cross to suffer and die for the sins of the world to be dealt with upon his shoulders. He knows all of that. So he's kind of, he just sees that and he's agitated and he's ready to go. And on a third level, he's disappointed. He sent a message to his nearest, dearest friends who've been with him three and a half years. Had they heard anything? <laughs> you know, they're falling apart. No, it, it's, nobody's happy to see him. He comes around the bend. Nobody's happy. Nobody's relieved. Nobody goes, oh, there he is. None of that. In fact, it could have been just Fred from the corner market with a, a bag of, you know, some vegetables. You know, here I am. I got something to bring to the funeral. Same thing. Could have been Bob, whatever, John. But the son of God who walked on water, raised two other dead people, raised some people who were uh, paralyzed, in front of these people, and then spoke as God, teaching them for three years. And not one of them, not one of them says, hey, okay, let's take our grief. Let's get some boundaries here. We're sad, we're upset, but God is in the midst. And God has already sent us a message that said, hey, this ends with a happy story. It has a happy ending. This sickness doesn't end in death. That's what he already sent, and here he is. He's the one who told the wind and the waves to stop, and the weather obeys him. Come on, guys. And he shows up at our funeral in our pain, and not one person is relieved. None of them. They're all just as distraught. Oh, here he is, a little late, a little late. Had you been here, we wouldn't be in this predicament. And he's upset. So upset he cries. It's upsetting when someone you love cannot be consoled. Even worse is that it's unnecessary grief they're bearing. And you're trying to convince them your worry, your fear is ungrounded. But nothing you say or do can help them, and you have to watch them lay all of the reasons you've given them and all of the, the reasons why they, have, they should have no fear. Because you've got plenty of money, and you're strong enough to protect them, and you will provide, and you make good your promises to keep them safe. But they're still panicked and distraught, like it's the end of the world. That grieves your heart. And that's why it sheds a tear. Like, man. That's too bad. It's unnecessary grief. And he sheds a tear about that. So he gives the order anyway. I just love the Lord. I mean, if it depended on us, we'd all be pretty much pathetically lost. Uh, but he gives the order, and uh, he says, take away the stone. And now we see, you know, she had the right words. This is the one who said, even, even now I know whatever you ask, God's going to do. Right, And when he says, do you believe on the resurrection and the life? This is the one who says, yes, I know. You're the son of God. And then he says, okay, let's go. Let's do this. Move away the stone. And she goes, oh, Lord, can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the weather here and the body's been in there for four days. It's going to be very unpleasant if we did that. And Jesus is like, Martha, please, didn't I tell you, believe Buckle your seatbelt and leave the rest to me, 
right? And so, you know, and buckle your seatbelts in the Greek there. It's hard to find. <laughs> but there it is. And so, so he says, take away the stone. Love the prayer. Oh, beautiful, very telling. He says, notice, he doesn't ask for the Father's help. He doesn't pray that God's power will raise him from the dead. Why? He doesn't need the Father's help. He's equal to the Father in every way. And he's not asking for God to do something that he can't do because he can do it. In fact, it says he taught earlier, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. John chapter 5. So he's saying, look, in the prayer, I really have no need to pray out loud, <laughs> uh, but I'm going to do it so that those who are listening can make the rightful connection between God the Father and God the Son. That's the prayer. Wow. Well, you know, he did say, I and the Father are one in John chapter 10 and verse 30, to which the Jews picked up stones to try to kill him. So Jesus says in that famous response there in John chapter 10, he says, okay, you're going to kill me? For which one of my good deeds are you going to kill me? And they say, oh, we're not going to kill you for doing a good deed. We're going to kill you. And here it is, that you, a mere man, make yourself equal to God. Bingo. They got the teaching. I and the Father are one. Later on at the Lord's Supper, he's going to say in John chapter 14, verse 9, when Philip says, just show us the Father. Give us a glimpse of God. And he says, I've been with you a long time. Still, you don't know me. You don't recognize me. Whoever has seen me has seen God the Father. Those words mean he knows and he's proclaiming that he is equal to God the Father in every way as God the Son. So that's about the prayer. And so really, when, when he says, roll away the stone, this is what the ancient tombs looked like. Very similar to the garden tomb. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, it's very similar to this. And this is how they did it. And there's a little narrow ditch groove that that stone uh, rolls back and forth. And so can you imagine the anticipation? Because the Son of God is calling for it to move. And now everybody's kind of like looking like, is this really going to happen? We know he's in there. We know he's been dead for four days. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And, and, it, and it says, the dead man came out walking. I mean, this is real dead man walking. <laughs> right? But he's only, this time, he's alive. And, you know, it's good that the Son of God was at the funeral because, you know... I would suspect when Lazarus appears that there could have been some heart attacks and some problems. And so I'm glad that he was there. But, you know, we have a little picture here. You know, that's how they wrapped the corpses. He's been in there. His spirit had departed four days earlier. He was in a place called Paradise. And he was probably carrying on a conversation with Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. You know, they're talking, right? And suddenly there's a rumble and there's a voice. And everybody goes, oh, we know that voice. <laughs> and, and there's a petition for him. And I don't know how it works. But, you know, one second he's talking, the next second he's like, what? 
<laughs> and he knows, he's called, he knows what to do. I need to get out of here, right? So he gets out and he hobbles down and out and everybody is just amazed. Now, we can leave that up for a second. Um, let me show you a verse that we end on here that the Bible says that this is really in many ways, a symbol of what happens when a person receives Christ. We are called dead in our sins, but we're, we're born that way, and then we need to be born again. And so when we hear the voice of God through the gospel, some of us hear it and we respond in a way like this. And, and, and let me show you the verse John chapter 5, he says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and is going on right now when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So commentators and Bible scholars say that he's talking about Christian conversion, that we are all like Lazarus in a way, spiritually speaking, kind of wrapped up in our grave clothes, born that way, until the Holy Spirit brings all that evidence, asks the question, and we say, yeah. And up from our grave, we rise. I mean, that's what we say at baptism. We're telling the world, well, I once was alive, and then I, I came to know Christ, and I died. And up from my death, I was washed clean, and a new life came. And so part of the process of being a Christian is unwrapping the things that belong to death. That's why he says, put off, take off anger and immorality and greed and profanity. Those are parts of the old life, and it's a process. And we need each other's help. That's why he says, hey, everybody, help him, unwrap him. And so when new Christians come into life, we got a lot of stuff hanging on, and sometimes it takes a while to unwrap. And, but that's the process called sanctification, how we grow in our Christian faith. And so... Now, there's a, yet one more thing to say. Lazarus heard his voice and rose, and so will you, Christian, and maybe you have, but so will everybody. And here, let me read it to you. One verse. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and rise. Some will rise to eternal life and some will rise for judgment. And it all comes down to one simple question. In light of all the evidence, do you believe this? To answer yes is to rise to life, even today. And to put it off or to say no. One day, according to the scriptures, you shall rise because you will hear his voice and then you will be face to face with him. But the, the point of Easter is believe, be saved, be washed of your sins, have your chromosomes lengthened, <laughs> spiritually speaking. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
The promise of eternal life and making us so easy. If it depended on us, God, forget about it. We would never make it. Uh, but it doesn't depend on us. It depends on the Lord Jesus Christ, his death on our behalf, and our simple trust to say, yes, I believe. Not simply in our minds, right, Lord? It's about in our hearts trusting in, a, in an experiential way. So help us, Lord. Especially those who are new and seeking and trying to understand and make sense of all of this. I pray an extra blessing on them, Lord, that they might come to know the love of God that most people in this room have come to know and love. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.